Father in heaven, we thank you for judgment, that you in your goodness and in your mercy have been gracious to us. You've given us life and breath this morning. Your mercies are new for us this morning as we wake up. So Father, we pray that you would give us refreshment before we face the realities of our day. We pray that you would help us now to focus in, to read your word, to allow your word to read us, that we would be transformed and graciously and mercifully that we would be humbled. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Daniel 4, that's where we're going to be. I'm going to ask a question that seems loaded, and especially if you have grown up uh, in church, if you've grown up around the Christian faith, uh, you're going to think immediately, well, that answer is easy. Okay? So here's the question. Is pride a virtue or is it a vice? Is pride a virtue, or is it a vice? Now, if you've grown up in church, as I said, you know very quickly, you're going to go very quickly, oh, I know the answer, right? I know what I'm supposed to say. It's vice. But I want to show you just real briefly as we wake up this morning and kind of get us thinking. The answer is not so quickly given in our culture, is it? And if we're going to be honest, we live in a society that is beginning to argue that pride is not really a vice at all, that there's actually something virtuous about pride. And that makes us different. That makes us counterculture. And what I want to show you real briefly is that idea is not new. The, the idea that pride is actually virtuous, something we should try to attain, something that is good for us, especially as men who've been called to conquer the world is nothing new. So real quickly, I want to show you this. Uh, if you've grown up again around Christianity, this would be the definition of pride that you're probably most accustomed to. This is C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. He's got a great section on pride. I want you to listen to this. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Now, first, I want you to ask yourself, do you agree with that? It's pretty strong language. He didn't just call it a vice. He says it's the utmost evil. And together, we've looked at pride before uh, in this study uh, and looked at even the Puritans who said it was really the essence of the fall, that the fall essentially when Adam and Eve fell, essentially it was pride. So here's Lewis. He's calling it the utmost evil. He says unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison got to love Lewis's wit, right? It was through pride that the devil became the devil, right? So the essence of what, who Satan is, right? Wanting to be God, wanting to conquer God, his own fall was pride. And then listen to this. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Strong language from Lewis. Pride is the utmost of evil. It is the essential vice. All other vices come from it. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If you've grown up around church, if you've grown up around Christianity, you might not have heard it put that way quite like that. But you've heard the teaching 
that pride is dangerous. Pride is sinful. Pride can destroy us from the inside out. But what I want you to recognize this morning is that teaching is countercultural. It is not a given in our culture. And we would be fools, especially as men this morning, to think that pride, especially in a culture that esteems it, does not affect us. Just because we know that it's a vice in our heads doesn't mean that we don't all struggle with this deep down in our hearts. And as I told you before, this is nothing new. Aristotle actually described pride as not a vice. It could be, but really it's a virtue. And for Aristotle, this is the litmus test. Do you have reason to be prideful? In other words, Aristotle would argue that pride is only wrong if you have no reason to be prideful, if you're filled with false pride. But if you have good reason to be prideful, if you're successful, if you're living rightly, then pride is virtuous. I want you to listen to Aristotle this morning. He says, Now the man is thought to be proud who thinks himself worthy of great things, being worthy of them. For he who does so beyond his desert, uh, desert is a fool, but no virtuous man is foolish or silly. In other words, if you are prideful, but you don't really deserve to be prideful, you're foolish. But if you are great, if you are strong, if you are powerful, if you are successful, if other people view you as such, then pride is not foolish at all. It's virtuous. In many ways, you could argue that this was the culture that he was living in. And in many ways, I would argue that this culture has continued throughout Western uh, thought for thousands of years. So now in 21st century America, as men in Dallas, Texas, that idea is not all that far off, is it, in our culture today? The idea that we need to find worth and value in ourselves and what we can accomplish and what we can do. That there's a certain virtue to pride. What I want to look at this morning is why even pride at any level, and even that kind of level, is dangerous. Because it's easy for us this morning to say, well, pride, you know, the kind of arrogance, boastfulness on the outward, it's easy to point that out and say, okay, we don't want to be that. But what happens when you keep your pride to yourself? When nobody knows, nobody hears, maybe you're not boastful, at least not to other people. But how much this morning do you rely on your own strength, on your own abilities, on your own worth, on your own value? Another way to ask it is this, where do you find your worth? Maybe a better question to begin with is, how much do you think you're worth? <laughs> and then where do you find that? How do you know that? What has assigned that value to you? Is it your paycheck? Is it how much you are loved by others? How much you are revered or esteemed? Is it your zip code? Is it your possession? What is it that gives you worth? So what I want us to see this morning, it's only when we find our worth in God in Jesus Christ, that we begin to recognize and really wrestle with who we truly are as men made in His image. What I want us to see is why I think, 
John Stott says it this way, why this is so true that at every stage of Christian development, every sphere of Christian discipleship, the greatest enemy is pride and humility is our greatest friend. So this morning we're going to look at another dream, another dream from Nebuchadnezzar. What we're going to see through his eyes once more, this pagan king filled with pride, is that as he is brought low and brought to humility, he's filled with a different kind of worth, the worth of God, and ultimately this pagan king is brought to worship. So what we're going to look at is not just pride, but why humility is the path to worshiping God for who he is, okay? So first, I want to look at his dream. I want to look at Daniel 4, verse 1. We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the second dream he's had. If you've been with us, we looked at a dream in Daniel 2. This is the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is this despot king. He is uh, a totalitarian. Uh, he is evil. Uh, he is haughty. He is full of himself. He is arrogant. It's the kind of pride that you don't have to guess. He is prideful, and he will let you know it. And he has another dream. So here's this great king of the Babylonian Empire. But what's different about this second dream is the way that this begins. And it's actually pretty artful. Not to say that the Bible is not artful. But it begins really with a flash forward. Or perhaps you could say really the whole thing, the whole story is a flashback. It begins with a decree given by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is significant for a lot of reasons. I'm just going to read it to you, just the first two verses. Notice how it reads, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples. So it's like a decree. Nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Does that sound like a haughty, arrogant, boastful king? That's a certain grace to it, isn't it? Verse 2, he says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, what's unusual about that? Well, he's a Babylonian king who renamed Daniel and his three friends according to Babylonian gods. And yet here he is, and who is he giving praise to? Yahweh king of the Jews, right? The God of gods, the most high God. So here he is. He's saying, peace be multiplied to you. And I want to show you. I want it to, In other words, he's, this is his testimony about what the most high God, Yahweh, has done for him. This is the decree. And this is unusual because if this is true, either he wrote this himself or said this or this was out there and Daniel borrowed it or Daniel wrote it down. We don't know exactly how... Got worded. But this is a pagan king declaring the greatness of God Almighty in the middle of Daniel, a book of the Bible. That would make it completely unique in all of Scripture. A pagan king praising God in the middle of the Bible. Why? What would bring this angry, evil, totalitarian, prideful, boastful king to not only declare peace for all his subjects, but to actually declare that God is the most high God. Let's look at the dream. Verse 4, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, I was at the ease of my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. So just like his first dream, he's had a second, and now he is afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I just want to point out something really quickly, and it's kind of a foreshadowing to what's to come. The word prospering here is uh, agricultural. It really, the word flourishing is probably better. And so here he is, he's saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I am uh, flourishing in my palace. I'm growing bigger and bigger, right? I am um, I'm prospering in a way that is beautiful, in a way that is growing larger than I could even imagine. And this is foreshadowing for this reason, because in visit, we're going to see what his dream is, what it at least is of. Uh, skip to verse 13. So he says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, Behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Again, we see his kind of pagan leanings here. It's probably like an angel in his dream, but he doesn't have those categories. And so for him, he calls this angel a watcher, a holy one. And in those days, especially in pagan culture, a pagan king, they thought that they had a watcher that looked out for him, kind of like a guardian angel, but it would be a royal one, right? This watcher that looked out for him. That's his category. It's very pagan, but that's what he calls it. Skip to 14. So this is what he says. He sees this watcher come. In verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. So notice the play on words here. Nebuchadnezzar says, I was flourishing in my palace, right? I was growing in my palace when suddenly I've been given a vision. And what's the vision? Well, it's of this great tree. This tree that is to be cut down, torn from limb from limb, all the way to the stump. And notice at the end of verse 15, this tree becomes personified, doesn't it? At first, it's just a tree, but by the end of 15, it says, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, the stump that's left. Let his, again, his personified stump portion be with the beasts and the ground, uh, grass of the earth. Look at verse 16. It says, let his mind, again personified, be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. Again, his pagan mindset. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. What I want you to see is in what's become now Nebuchadnezzar's pluralist mind. He's got pagan ideas swirling in there. He's got now the second dream that's alarming him, a dream of this tree being cut down. The first, again, a statue being destroyed. Now this tree being cut down. Notice what he says in verse 17. 
Because I would argue that this is the theme of the book of Daniel. And it comes from a pagan king's dream. Listen to it again. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the theme of Daniel. It's the message that is so good for us to hear this morning. That God is God regardless of our circumstance. That God is God even of the greatest kings and powers and authorities of this earth, whether they believe it or not. And God is God of the lowliest of men. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and there is nothing that gets in the way of His kingdom and His dominion. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's been given this dream. Verse 18, it's dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, first person saw, and you, O Belshazzar, if you've been with us, who's Belshazzar? Chief magician, but who, 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 who is he? Daniel. He's Daniel. That is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel. You, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, notice his pluralism. He's going from paganism to the God most high. And then what does he say? He, Belshazzar, not Daniel, but Belshazzar, your pagan name. And he said, why does he come to Daniel? Because of the spirit of the holy gods. So he's still very much a pagan king. That's the dream. And just like the first one, he's alarmed and he's come to Daniel. This time he's not threatening to kill all of the wise men of Babylon. No, this time he just goes straight to Daniel. He says, Daniel, I need you to interpret the dream. So let's look at the interpretation. Let's look at the interpretation. Hopefully at this point, you're probably, if, you, if you've been with us, you probably have some guesses as to what this means. Verse 19. So then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Now, what do you notice about this interchange? Here's this Babylonian king has just been given this dream. And he is alarmed. But what, Daniel's even more alarmed. Daniel, in understanding what this dream means, is beside himself. And now, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to calm Daniel down about his own dream. That's about him. <laughs> you see this very I mean, quick disconnect between Nebuchadnezzar and what he's experiencing in his life. Yeah, he's alarmed, but not that alarmed. Here's Daniel. He can't believe what he is hearing and seeing. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, don't be alarmed by what you hear. And this is what Daniel says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, this is so bad that I hope it's not for you, king. Now, a couple things to notice here. Again, Daniel's courage. <laughs> he's been asked to interpret a dream for a very evil king, and he's just going to tell the truth. <laughs> Right? Don't kill the messenger. I'm just going to tell you the truth. But also notice this. 
Daniel, who is in exile. Yes, he's in the Babylonian court, but not by choice. Has compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. He has compassion for him. And I don't believe it's false. I think it's genuine. He's looking at this king and he's saying, I I hope this is not about you. But it is. Verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So there it is, repeated again. Do you notice it? The theme. Why is this going to happen? That you would know that God Almighty rules over the kingdom of men. And what's going to happen to him? Verse 26. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for the time that you know that heaven rules. All right, so here's what's going to happen, he says. You're going to lose your kingdom for a period of time. You're going to be brought low. Your kingdom will be preserved, just as the stump was preserved with a a band of iron and bronze around it. But you are going to be, uh, your kingdom will be preserved, but you are going to be brought low. You will lose your kingdom for a time. Why? So that you would know that God Almighty rules over all. And then Daniel and his compassion. Notice what he says in verse 27. And his compassion, he then comes to the king, and he calls him to repent. Can you imagine what that must have been like? This king who is holding you in exile, who has threatened to kill you and others, has called you into his court to interpret a dream. And not only do you tell him the truth and say, hey, this dream's about you, and you're going to lose everything, but also I'm going to call you now to repent. Where does this kind of confidence come from? Well, it's not from Daniel. It's from his God. He believes the message of Daniel, that God Almighty is the God over all kingdoms and all kings. And to that end, even to Nebuchadnezzar, he stands up to him and he says, Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Think about how easy it is for us, and I'm, listen, guys, I'm at the front of the line here to cower at our culture, to cower over the kings and authorities of our culture and not tell the truth about who God is. And what is more, to, to, to not call people to repent, and, and again, We could spend a whole lesson on what that should actually look like because I think historically we've done a bad job at this. Uh, Notice Daniel's not prideful here in calling Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He's not saying do it like me. He's saying you need to recognize who God is, Nebuchadnezzar, and you need to bow before him. In other words, you need to humble yourself. So does Nebuchadnezzar do it? If you know the end of the story, the answer is no. No, he does not. 
And the reason is because he cannot possibly fathom anything above himself. Again, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he says, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And that's ultimately Nebuchadnezzar's problem. He is so high and mighty over other people that he's always looking down. And as Lewis says again with just great English wit, if you're looking down, you can't be looking up. Nebuchadnezzar cannot fathom a world where there is a God who is above him. And that's what pride does to us, deep down. Not just, again, the boastful arrogance, but pride deep down at our core. It causes us to lose sight of God completely. We become focused on ourselves, focused on our own plans, our own abilities, and we completely lose focus completely lose sight of God and who he is and what he wants for us. So this is what happens. The dream actually comes to pass, verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. This is the entire dream. At the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace. And I love this scene. It's like, you know, it's almost so ridiculous. Uh, it's like, really? Uh, but he, I mean, here he is, verse 30. and says, is this not great Babylon? which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. <laughs> so let's think of the most prideful, arrogant thing we can think of and put it right here. Right? I mean, here, here he is. He's literally walking around his palace and saying, look what I have built for my glory. Behold, I am awesome. Behold, I am great. And I love this, verse 31, while the words were still in his mouth. They haven't even left his mouth yet. There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. So here he is surveying all that he has built for himself. And now the dream is going to be fulfilled. How has it departed from you? Verse 32. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men. Again, there's the theme. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, made, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. In other words, he became beastly. Not only did he lose his throne, but he became subhuman. He became the lowest possible form of a creature that you could possibly become. He completely lost his mind. And here he is, now the subhuman form of a creature for seven years. Why would God do that? Why would God not only force Nebuchadnezzar off of his throne, but put such a curse on him like this? That not only are you not king anymore, but you're not even human. You've completely lost your mind. You're eating grass just like an ox does. And your hair is grown out and you have claws. And a lot of people have tried to uh, figure out what happened to him. My favorite theory is that he became a werewolf, which is awesome. 
There's part of me that hopes it's true. <laughs> but yeah, that's actually in commentaries. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, we don't exactly know. But as you read over this, you can't help but recognize right, the twist. This haughty, prideful, arrogant king being brought lower than any human has ever really been. Why? Theme over and over and over again. That you would know that God the Most High has dominion over all things. So that's the dream. That's the fulfillment. It's interesting. You know, I think of a lot of places in the New Testament. What would we might learn from this? I mean, do you see yourself in Nebuchadnezzar? Do you see yourself being brought low, perhaps? And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but maybe this describes you in some way. Maybe you've had an experience like this where God has brought you lower than you thought you would ever go. Why does he do these things? Why does he remove the kingdoms that we build ourselves from our own grip? Why does he sometimes bring us lower than we'd ever want to go? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, what we're going to see is it completely changes everything about him and brings him to worship. So that's where we're going to end, and I'm going to send you to your table. We begin with the dream, and we're going to end with a doxology. The doxology of a humbled king. Daniel 4, verse 34 he says again in the first person, at the end of the days, at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or can say to him, what have you done? Now notice, uh, it should be in your passage there, that it breaks from prose into more poetry. You notice that? And this would not be unusual in the Bible, certainly not unusual in the book of Daniel, that we'd see this uh, beautiful kind of poetic uh, doxology the worship of God. What makes this so incredibly unusual, and I'd argue unique in all the Bible, is the one who's speaking the doxology. It's not Daniel, right? It's not the Apostle Paul. It's not some prophet called by God. It's a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar who has killed and destroyed and ravaged his own empire. And yet he has been brought to his knees, and he is worshiping God as God alone. Do you see that? How could that happen? Well, God, by his grace and mercy, completely wrecked Nebuchadnezzar's life. Just to show him who's in charge. He was always in charge. We saw it at the beginning of Daniel. After all, it was God who exiled his own people, right? He led them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. We read that at the beginning. It's just that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. He was living in a world where he was on top. He was at the center, right? 
not only outwardly but inwardly, his pride had completely consumed him. And so God brought him lower than he had ever been to teach him a lesson, that he is the most high God over all kingdoms and all dominions. And so here he is, praising and worshiping God. And there are some interpreters who see this and argue that this we're witnessing Nebuchadnezzar come to saving faith. That this is his conversion. Others say, well, I can't be so sure. And I, and I think we, we don't know. None of us can judge a man's heart, right? And there's more story to be told. But what you have to recognize is a complete change in attitude in Nebuchadnezzar. The same king who was threatening to kill all of his magicians because they couldn't guess what was in his head has now been humbled to the point that he is worshiping God Almighty. And not only that, right? You don't see the paganism anymore. He is the one true God. His dominion, an everlasting dominion, the kingdom endures from generation to generation. He goes on and says, at the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So here he is, saying, well, I became even greater than I was before. But notice what he says next. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So he got the message, didn't he? He got the message repeated over and over and over again in Daniel 4, that you would know that the Lord Most High, right, that you would know the Lord Most High. So here he is, the end of all of this saying, God, God is the one to be praised. God is the one whose works are right and just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Brothers, what I want you to see is the epitome of pride, as Lewis said, is anti-God, right? That it's not just about boasting or being arrogant or that people would look at us and think, well, that guy's really full of himself, but it's that deep down, where do you find your worth? Because if your worth is in yourself, you will never worship God. You never see his worth, his value, his esteem, his might, his greatness. Right? The word worship literally comes from the word worth, worthship. It is only that when you see how low you are that you can begin to really magnify and glorify God alone. Not above other gods that you might be tempted to worship, but above yourself. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar learned. That's what he saw. And so here's my question for you. And it's a question probably all deep down ask sometimes, especially if you know God, if you know Jesus Christ. Will you humble yourself and fall down at his throne and worship him? Or will you test his patience? Because God in his graciousness for his children and his sons won't allow them to just go on being prideful. Sometimes it's a mercy of his that if we will not humble themselves, he will do it for us. He will humble us just like he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And it is painful and it hurts, but it is a gracious, 
severe mercy to show us that God is the God Almighty. and He alone is the one to be praised. And so as we wrestle in our tables, I want you to wrestle with this question. Have you ever been humbled before <laughs> in a way that hurt? And where do you see God's sovereign hand in that? What did he teach you in that to show you that he is alone, the God of gods, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, his dominion is everything. Let me pray for you, send you to your table. Father, we thank you. It is our prayer. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers here that you, by your Holy Spirit, would lead us to a path of humility, that we now, even this day, would humble ourselves, that we would fall down before your throne, that in your enthronement we would find our right place as humble servants. God, I do pray that if you have, or if you are, or if you will, by your sovereignty, by your grace, humble any of us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you are trying to show us. That in humbling us, you are bringing us near to the heart of God. Be with us now as we discuss in Jesus' name. Amen.